Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, what are we going to talk about? I don't know. It's hot, but the weather's boring. The State of the Union is screwed. Yeah. You can talk Actually, about D.C. Clear. is much emptier than usual. Okay, so right now, D.C. is very empty. Have you noticed this? It's the post-July 4th week. I have a theory. Everybody's gone. It's also that the kids get out of school late. What? Everybody's kids like, have been out of school for like three weeks. I have a really good, yeah. me- I have a really good well, measure of how empty ta- uh, D.C. is at any given time and how full D.C. is. Okay. Taekwondo and Aikido studio attendance. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Servers and Seals edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Uh, not seals as in the mammal. Well, I guess these seals are mammals. So they are mammals, the yes. The two-legged variety. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to be bound and determined to work that title in there. <laughs> I love it. You I like love it. it. You like it so much. Um, that was first my good friend Tamara Kaufman with us, joining me here in the studio. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. With uh, Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi, Yo. Shane. It's much cooler in here than it is outside. I'm it not is. enjoying that. I Even think that's true of anywhere inside, pretty probably. Much. Pretty and it's much. much cooler here, or, and it's probably almost as cool outside as it is in the Justice Department today, oh. where I spent the morning. Oh, were you there? Yeah. Well, oh, wow. I, was, I was in the Justice Department this morning, and it was sweltering. Were you also just popping by to say hi to Loretta Lynch and talk about golf? I jumped on Grand the plane. <laughs> Ben's plane landed next to the Justice Department. Hey, and I, and I, I walked in, and the thing is, like, I don't have grandkids, and I don't play golf. But that's what we talked about. Really? Grandkids and golf. Yeah. I believe him. Mm-hmm. I believe him, too. Yeah. Nothing fishy at all about what's going on there. Uh, this week on the podcast, something at the Justice Department, well, not Justice Department, the FBI. The FBI made big news in the FBI and the Justice Department this week. Hillary Clinton will not be prosecuted over her use of a private email server, bringing our long national nightmare to an end, just in time for a new one to begin. And we'll talk about that. Uh, the death toll of a bombing in Baghdad approaches 300 and the death of a Navy sailor raises concerns about the training of elite military operators, plus object lessons. Um, let's start with, obviously, the big news of the day, uh, of the week. Jim Comey announced in a press conference on Tuesday, which I attended, and I just want to like give a little flavor for how weird this was. Would you please? Yeah, so when he says, he's been saying this today in testimony on the Hill, that nobody in the press knew about this, nobody knew anything. He's not kidding. Like, everybody's in this room looking at each other, presuming he is here to talk about Hillary Clinton, but also going, why would he be so crazy as to do this on the day that she goes down to campaign with Barack Obama for the first time? And why would they do this? I think just interviewed her on Saturday. The optics look terrible. Then we remembered, like, this is not a place that's concerned about optics lately, apparently. And, like, for a moment, people were really wondering if he was going to come out and resign. 
like and like could saying something oh, like that I there can't was a great scandal. <clears throat> that there was he should have just come on. out and been like, "Hey guys, just checking in. Yeah. How are you doing?" <laughs> right. And we actually <laughs> joked about that. Like, it's like, boy, you picked a great time to like announce a new FBI personnel and diversity initiative, <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> 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 a room full of forty reporters. Um, but truly, I mean, nobody knew what he was going to say. Wow. Uh, and then he came out and, of course, announced that uh, he did not recommend pressing charges against Hillary Clinton and the Justice Department then on Wednesday, I guess, Wednesday night, said they agreed. Um, so this would seem to bring an end uh, to uh, the issue of the, the investigation, obviously, uh, but now Congress is saying that they're going to investigate other matters of Hillary Clinton related to her email. Um, I'd just be curious sort of, to get everybody's sort of initial reaction, both I mean, to the end of this scandal, but also kind of the way it went down. It was extraordinary to see the FBI director coming out and giving his reasons publicly for, he even acknowledged this. He would never usually do this, but he thought the public interest was so intense in this that he had to come out and explain, here's why we've decided not to recommend charges. Right. So the public interest was intense, of course, but there's also a political context much stronger than is typical for an FBI investigation. And then you had this whole dust-up with Loretta Lynch and President Bill Clinton having this side conversation on the tarmac somewhere. And so somebody had to be out front on this decision and take public responsibility and make public explanations for this decision. And it obviously couldn't be Loretta Lynch. Right. 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 So Who normally you would expect to see come out and talk about a decision to not press charges. Right. Right. I mean, like, I think clearly the, the sort of the somewhat strange format of giving that press conference was probably a reaction to Tarmac Gate. Have we officially yeah. decided on Tarmac yeah. Gate as the... Uh... Tarmac actually a proper noun, though very few tarmacs actually made of tarmac. But go ahead. Wow. Fascinating. There Things we, we did not know. Yeah. Rational security. Educating as well. Uh, Since 2015. <laughs> <laughs> Trying. No, I mean, look, I, clearly there was sort of this um, Paul cast over the whole ordeal, um, you know, by sort of uh, some of the Clintons' trademark disregard for appearances, sort of regardless of what was actually discussed uh, in this airplane meeting. Um, and so I think Comey wanted to be really, really clear that the FBI is, is an independent body. I mean, they are part of the Justice Department, but that their investigation was independent and that his recommendation was not uh, politically influenced or coordinated. Um, I do think that he uh, he took the opportunity to um, build a lot into a statement that he knew wasn't going through the interagency process. He took some big swipes, some swipes at the State Department <laughs> he and did. other things. And at Hillary Clinton calling her extremely careless right. and her aides. No, the calling her her behavior, yeah. extremely careless. Well, what's the difference? Um, I think I think he was careful not to make any character judgments about any individuals, and I, I haven't gone through his testimony uh, today. But I think he was uh, actually pretty careful about not making any sweeping generalizations about anything related to people as opposed to the behavior that he in investigated. Um, okay, fine. That's a very, very fine distinction. But at the same time, careless is not a statutory term. Right. It has no legal meaning. It is editorializing. Yes. So, like, I think, I mean, I do think it, it is editorializing, but I think he's being careful not to comment on her character necessarily um, because... This kind of conduct, while extremely careless, is not all that rare. Now, certainly in scale, certainly the private server, I mean, there are a lot of sort of quasi-unique elements here. Um, but in general, uh, you know, 
agencies, people who work in federal agencies that have a job to do, uh, occasionally sort of view security measures as damage that they then have to root around. Um, one of the challenges in designing security measures is not being obstructionist. So it's easy for individuals, I, I, this includes Jim Comey, whose offices are within SCIFs, who have high-side computers at their desks, who uh, who communicate with other individuals that are have the same setup, um, to sort of really wag their fingers. And, and I'm one of them. I think this is not, um, you know, this this is not acceptable. This really demonstrates bad judgment. That said, you see it all across the government. This kind of, um, you know, the need to get the job done and and workarounds. And that and doesn't mean these leaking. systems are really inconvenient sometimes. Exactly. Like whenever you have to communicate a piece of information to somebody who is not in a secure space, this temptation to sort of talk around it or, or walk up to the line or, uh, you know, the secure fax isn't working, so use it this way, this and that, that's something that happens a lot. And so I think, and I think Comey is aware of that. So I think his statement is at least partially colored by the understanding that whatever he's saying about this particular conduct, he's also saying it about a lot of people in the federal government. Well, I, I also, I also don't think, think, I, I also that, really right. don't think uh, that calling this extremely careless is editorializing. Um, the standard in the statute for criminal indictment is grossly negligent. And so if you're going to say that it doesn't meet the statute, that, that the behavior doesn't meet the statutory standard of grossly negligent, or you're not going to indict on the basis of grossly negligent, it seems like you've got to, as a, as a accountability matter, say what you think it is. And so I, I, I mean, I think, I suppose he could have said, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not defending the behavior that took place. Uh, you know, others can characterize it as they want. We don't think it met the statutory standard for indictment. Um, but I, th but I think his, his, the, the point he was trying to get across is that there is really two categories of gross mishandling of classified material. One is the stuff that's, really merely uh uh you know careless and negligent and bad and uh not motivated by anything malicious it's just careless and then there's the stuff they indict which is all of that with some added element like an obstruction of an FBI investigation or leaking in other words or, David Petraeus which right. is an example he brought up a number of times today right so David Petraeus Gives, said he should have been prosecuted. Gives four documents, notebooks to his mistress saying, be careful, there's code word classified stuff in there. You know, um, Although, look, one thing that is often lost in the Petraeus discussion is the mistress also had a security clearance. Now, she wasn't authorized to see that material, and the behavior itself was egregious. That said... He wasn't sharing information with like some. No, hot he wasn't, he wasn't sharing was it with her for any work purpose. He was sharing it with her for a personal purpose, and he said, "This is code word classified." In other words, I know you shouldn't have this, and I'm handing it to you right and, and, now. And, 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 and that's agreed. In, in Clinton's case, and I, I think this hasn't gotten sort of enough attention in amelioration. She was not sharing material with people with classified material with people who were not authorized to receive it. The problem is simply the mode of transmission of material to people who are authorized to receive it. Although Republicans pressed Comey on the question of why was it that her lawyers 
and her technicians who did not have proper security clearances were allowed to go through the information. And he had, by the way, a pretty good answer for it, which was like, I think because she was seeking legal counsel and technical assistance and there was no assumption they were reading the emails. But you could already see how Republicans were going to seize on every last little bit of every one of these arguments and say, but, aha, but David Kendall, your lawyer, didn't have a security clearance and let you let him go through the emails. You were negligent. They so, kept trying to, and doesn't that demonstrate intent? At one point they said to is share classified information with someone who's not authorized to receive it, and you could almost see Comey's head exploding. Yeah, can, I mean, can you guys, who are FBI watchers more than I, explain how unusual is it for a congressional committee to call an FBI director up to testify about a particular investigation? It's never like, happened. It's never happened. Not, not, not to Jim Comey. He said that. He said, no, no, but it has happened. It said, I've never happened. No, Sorry, I mean, for this director, he said Louis it never Free happened. Louis Free was called to testify a number of times about the Clinton campaign finance matter. I mean, FBI investigation. You're drawing these wonderful parallels. Hey, 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 hey. Uh, <laughs> so connect the dots for us. No, no. Uh, well, go ahead. I'll no, say something I mean, in a second. I, I think it is not unprecedented. It is unprecedented in Comey's case. It is not unprecedented for people to haul the attorney general or the uh, FBI director up for uh, grilling about particular investigations. And the most famous example, if you remember Janet Reno's robotic, uh, in, in retrospect, clearly pre-Parkinsonian uh, response, I cannot comment on a pending investigation to hundreds of questions in a row. Uh, so she's, you know, this is not the first time that that sort of thing has happened. I do think it's an extremely bad practice, just as a, you know, you, you didn't indict who I want, I'm going to haul you in front of a congressional committee and make you answer it. Well, but that maybe that's the essence of congressional oversight right there, is why isn't the administration do, doing what I would do if I were them? But Shane, you, you had a theory about this. So my theory on this, and to Ben's point, what I would note about those three examples is that they all involve scandals. Oh, there's other examples. Um, in the Clinton administration and Republicans, I believe, right, calling up Democratic officials to testify, or officials in Democratic uh, administrations. Oh, wait, it's way worse than that. They all involve the personal conduct of Bill and Hillary so, Clinton. And, and, you know, you can, there will come a day when somebody will say, how have the norms of federal prosecution, you know, federal c prosecution and you know, interbranch relations over investigations changed because of the investigations of Bill and Hillary Clinton. And I think, as I was saying earlier before we went on the air, I think you can go back and you will mark this day as the moment that the campaign to impeach Hillary Clinton began. So what a foolish strategy. The foolish strategy is because, just like Mitch McConnell said, that his number one priority was making Barack Obama a one-term president and by God, did he live out that creed, mm. uh, you know, to uh, potentially the peril of the Republican Party. Um, if they go into this next administration with this kind of, uh, you know, we're going to impeach Hillary, we're going to be this sort of obstructionist Congress, and we're going to have another four or eight years of this, I, I think that these sort of predictions about the end of the grand old party as we know it might actually come to pass. I, I, I've said before I think the party died long ago, but, like, I think you're but absolutely right. this is right. a this degree is, this is of Obsessive, like well, self-destructive obsession. It's like some kind of, it's like an allergic reaction. <laughs> it's like it's beyond their control. I mean, you saw this yesterday when Comey, the day after Comey had come out 
and said that they weren't going to press forward. I mean, Republicans were apoplectic. There was talk of appointing a special prosecutor. Paul Ryan refused to rule it out. They called an emergency hearing to bring the FBI director to the Hill for the first time in his tenure. The man is a card-carrying Republican, although and, and no longer not anymore. Been, as he pointed out today, which I wanted to say was, was that because of Trump or your job? Yeah. Um, but this is, I mean, you can't, I mean, it's that there's something about these two people and Bill and Hillary Clinton that just make Republicans nuts. And, I mean, and it's actually way worse than that, Shane, because you know, Comey gave Republicans a script for the next five months of campaign. You know, anybody reading that document I mean, has, a statement of why they aren't going to press yeah, charges. Yeah, has oh yeah a, 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 a lot of reason to wonder about the judgment that she exercised in that instance. Sure. And a sane Republican Party would look at this document and say. Look, we accept the uh, that this might not have reached the level of of, uh, of of worthy of indictment. But look at what the FBI director says of the Democratic nominee for president. She endangered national security. Her secure, you know, her her computer system may well have been uh, penetrated by foreign actors. Uh, she uh, uh, did not tell the truth about key aspects of it. Uh, I mean, there's some damaging stuff in there about her, and they've actually lost the ability to talk about it because they're angry that she wasn't indicted rather than focusing on the things that that he found that she did. It's classic Republican behavior. I mean, it is. And with the Clintons and other things, too. It's. I mean, it's like, you know, you can't just admit that maybe you had a victory here, and, you're, and they're determined to turn Snatching. it into... Right, stretching out a victory or defeat from the jaws of victory here, right? I mean, which, it is... which Trump also did by stepping all over this news with his bizarre. Well, Trump, Trump went a step further. <laughs> Somebody tweeted at, uh, yesterday, aid, um, uh, quote, uh, Comey just described Hillary Clinton as having been extremely careless and endangered national security. You know what to do, right? Uh, Trump. Yeah. Praise Saddam Hussein. <laughs> so, that, so, wait, so first, uh, first it's Comey, uh, Comey announces uh, there's the Tarmac Gate meeting, and Trump follows that up with the um, a sheriff's badge. Is that the uh, right. what the oh, star God. is, yeah. right? So he steps on that news with his uh, with an anti-Semitic tweet, and then he steps on this next one by repeated praising of Saddam Hussein. There's the only explanation left for this, I'm sorry, logically, is that there's a conspiracy and he's trying to get Hillary elected. <laughs> it's the only thing that makes sense anymore. Why are you looking for logic? I, oh God, I have to. It's my job. <laughs> Actually, somebody, I think I read that somebody asked him um, about the possibility that he would win and then withdraw. Yeah. And I think his response he was, he, he said, well, we'll no, just we'll have, have to see. see how I feel if that happens. <laughs> Um, but, you know, then to your point, and then we'll go, we want to wrap this up and move on some other stuff, but, you know, you and I disagreed about something earlier, which was that if I had been advising Jim Comey on this, I would have said, number one, don't say anything, and number two, if you feel that you must say something, given the intense public interest in this case, go out, say, we're not recommending charges because we don't think it meets the statutory requirement of gross negligence, and be done with it and spare us the editorializing. Because what he did by that, and he got some flack from this from people too, is he did give the Republicans a script. He entered into the campaign and put himself in it 
in a way that then resulted not 48 hours later in him testifying well, to the oversight. And what he did was really this. worse because he um, he addressed an audience, sort of a lay audience, a very large audience, using legal terms without being careful about explaining what the difference is between extreme carelessness and gross negligence. <laughs> and if you're going to bring those terms to the public, I, I think that there is an obligation to be really, really clear about what exactly the difference is. Otherwise, it begs the question, how is this not grossly negligent? So right, I, I, although he did spend a bunch of time at the hearing today going through all of that, right? I mean, I, 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 I do not want to be conspiratorial about this at all, but I go back to the point I made at the beginning, which is that somebody in the Justice Department was going to have to go out and defend this to the public. And if it wasn't going to be Jim Comey, the FBI director, with an unblemished record and a Republican identification and all this other stuff, it was going to be somebody that was too easily painted as a Democratic yeah. uh, partisan. <laughs> yeah, and half, so yeah. I don't know if, if somebody asked him to do it or if he decided to do it for the sake of the rule of law, but he went out and took that hit. Uh, on behalf of the entire administration, so basically. I, I, I think that's exactly right, except except for the except for the description of on behalf of the entire administration. There's a couple things. First of all, the, the thing that people don't understand about Jim Comey is that he's like the only true WYSIWYG guy in Washington. And, um, you know, what's a WYSIWYG? WYSIWYG. Wow, that is such a 1980s Microsoft term, Ben. <laughs> what you see is what you get. I don't even scout. know what that means. He is, um, he is a, um, he is a guy with absolutely no political subtext. And if he says he's going out there because he thinks the American people need to know what they found, and that's because he thinks the American people need to know what they found. It's actually not, there's no subtext to it. People, like Washington journalists, are always looking for, like, well, what's the story behind the story? There's no story behind okay, the story. but he's not politically tone deaf. He understands that there's a deeply partisan context within which this it, investigation it's is not, being It's concluded. not a question of tone deaf. It's a question of not caring. And he understood his job to be, there's two things got to do, got to announce a non-pros recommendation, and got to make clear, uh, give certain amount of accountability for what happened, and a certain amount of explanation as to uh, what, why that, how that interacts with the recommendations that we're making. So that's what he did. And so the second, the second point on which I really think Tamara is hitting the nail on the head is that this would have played out very differently had Bill Clinton not made a conscious or subconscious decision to publicly compromise the Attorney General. And, you know, he decided, for whatever reason, that it made sense the week before this decision was coming down to jump on her airplane and cause a little scandal about that. And that made it impossible for her to do this in a way that uh, would have had an ounce of political credibility. Moreover, anybody working for her would have been accused of the same thing. Although, and, speaking honestly, is there anyone, she or anyone working for her, who would be able to do it with credibility given the partisanship of the environment well, and the way the Republicans would have treated it? Right. I mean, so, so look, it's a hard problem anyway. But normally, the way you handle something like this as a sitting attorney general without an independent counsel, you know, with an independent counsel, the independent counsel issues a final report, and that's how you handle it. But without an independent counsel, normally the way you handle it is that the attorney general gets up there, 
and gives a press conference or gives an announcement that says uh, the key words is the unanimous recommendation of the career officials and FBI agents who worked on this case. And they like to be able to say that because then it shows that it's not a political judgment. And the problem is that having Loretta Lynch or anybody work for her announcing that at this point just has less credibility than it should. And so I think Comey undoubtedly felt an added responsibility to take responsibility for making sure that people reacted to it in as apolitical a way as possible, which is not to say he was naive and thought it was going to be received apolitically, but is, is to say that, you know, somebody had to say this followed the regular order and nobody else in the government was positioned to say that well except him. So he did it for the rule of law. Yeah, I, I think he did it, you know, look at the first or second paragraph of his statement and it'll say, I do it because I think the American people, nobody knows what I'm going to say here, and the American people need to have a window into what we did and why we did it. I think it's just that simple. Yeah. It sure does make Obama's decision to appoint Comey in the first place, which was not uncontroversial, look awfully wise in retrospect that, that this really was. Um, yeah. For the record, I'm very benefits. glad he did it. I mean, not just as a journalist, but yeah, I mean, I, I just think if I were advising him, I would have been like, you sure, boss? Play. Plus, have you seen how tall that guy is? Yeah, he's really tall. <laughs> I mean, you seriously, I mean, the room was, like, hanging on every word. It was just... <gasps> was I, he enjoying that? He Did he have a smile No, on? he was, like, reading the teleprompter, and he just was straight ahead. And they came in, they said he's going to speak for 15 minutes, and gave take no questions, and we're like... <gasps> you know, and it was, like, it was just, I mean, you're just sitting there like... And then? And then? And, like, I'm going to do something I've never done. We're like, oh, my God. <laughs> it, was, it was, I mean, talk about, like, seriously, this was not a low drama moment. So here's a question. Sir. Are the press, <laughs> Jim Comey, Washington giant drama, drama queen? Is, is the press a bunch of Jim Comey fanboys? Uh, put it this way. I think that people, and if they, I mean, I've been saying this for a long time, that he is, you know, I always describe him as a Boy Scout. I just think that's who he is. In the, in the few instances I've been around him, he's exactly like you say. Um and I think after today, if there weren't a lot of press fanboys of Jim Comey and girls, there are now. Because, I mean, he really also, too, I mean, he just was not flustered. He was not uh, knocked off by the Republicans today. Even when these people were coming at him, basically, you know, almost like to the point of like pulling out a dictionary and like, you know, right here it says the definition of intent, you know, that kind of thing. The only time he got visibly pissed was when Congressman Micah seemed to imply that he had coordinated his statement with the administration, and he actually, like, butted in. and He said you know, under, let me reiterate, under oath. Yeah, he said, yeah, exactly. He said, you know, like, you go back and you tell your colleagues and look them in the eye because you heard it from me. That didn't happen. I was like, oh, okay. Right. There are very few people in Washington who, when they make a factual statement, you don't need to check it. Mm -hmm. He's one of them. So, anyway... Also, so whatever about the queen. press corps, there are some Jim Comey fanboys yeah. right here. I oh, get that. Keep also, it up, Jim. Also, it was a good time to remind everybody about that he gave the greatest congressional testimony, like in recent memory, in two thousand seven. Yeah, that that the Schumer or the, uh, the hospital the hospital visit. Yeah, that was. Uh, do you remember this? Right. That yeah. was an amazing. One God, of the great moments in recent congressional groupies. history. Well, they really queen. are. They are. Amazing. They, you know. <laughs> Jim Comey has a career as a Hollywood producer when this is all over. I think you have a career as his biographer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's so boring, though. 
He seems boring, but he's prone to drama. I can't figure him out. We'll talk about it another time. Um, <laughs> let's right. just do a Comey podcast. Meanwhile, back in the <laughs> podcast. All right, let's move on uh, to a more somber topic here. Um, so uh, the death toll from this just absolutely devastating car bomb, uh, which is a car bomb in Baghdad, is now up to uh, 292, as we talk about this on Thursday. Um, this is an attack that um, I believe did kill a large number of children. Um, happened during Ramadan, obviously. And there are a lot of car bombs in Iraq, and this one has, I think, kind of gripped the attention uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the death count is just, the body count is so high. And it does come amid other um, uh, attacks attributed to ISIS elsewhere in the region. We talked last week about how ISIS, when they're on the ropes and losing territory, seem to go out and commit attacks elsewhere. Um, but uh, let, let's talk about the, the significance of this and kind of impressions of it. Well, certainly it comes at the end of an exceptionally bloody Ramadan, and sort of, um, I think it really highlights um, uh, Muslims as victims of ISIS, and, and there should not be any question in anyone's minds, uh, right, that ordinary Muslims are, are victims here. I think one of the interesting kind of um, security lessons here, the things that, that I thought was really interesting, was um, that the body count is not really, uh, it's not really a function of the car bomb, it's a function of sort of ordinary safety protocols. So it turns out that um, a significant number of people died in the initial explosion, but actually a far larger number died in a fire afterwards, um, because the fire doors were locked. Um, so this is not something that is unique to Iraq. Um, there's been, you know, nightclubs in, in yeah. the United States and, um, and, and in France and in Argentina. There's all these sort of um, these horrific things, and they're often related around fires. Um, but I think it's really... Um, it really puts into perspective kind of um, the importance of uh, taking a broader, more resiliency-based sort of understanding of security, that um, you can't just focus on whether or not you can stop a car bomb from going off. You also have to focus on whether or not your public places, should something happen, people can get out safely, and that that really is the crux of security, that a huge part of this game has to be being able to take the hit and mitigate the damage, and that that really the sort of the the shocking part, you know, of, of this whole thing, um, really is how much of that death toll probably could have been brought down by not intelligence sharing, not some sort of special tool, or but by basic common sense practices like fire safety doors, right, and a certain degree of public education too. I mean, when you think about it, we now live in an America where kids in elementary school have active shooter drills, even though. <laughs> You know, that's a higher probability event than we would like. It's still a fairly low probability event. Um, but we've, you know, our society, other societies do public education around fire safety. Yeah, we fire do, drills. you know, we do fire drills. We teach people stop, drop, and roll. Um, you know, and all of that also matters. Do, does the general public have even a basic sense of what to do in an emergency? Um, so that's another component of resilience, Susan. I completely agree with you. I, I think there's another aspect of this particular horrific event that's worth focusing on, which is not just the context for ISIS and the fight against ISIS, but the Iraqi context. The interior minister resigned in the face of this attack after basically admitting that the checkpoints that ring Baghdad in an effort to try and prevent uh, bomb-filled cars from getting into the city are essentially ineffective. Um, there, I don't know precisely what the evidence is, but the reporting is that this bomb came from fairly far outside the city, from a, um, 
an area to the north and got into the city just through these checkpoints. And so I think it's it's another marker for a lot of Iraqis of their government can't keep them safe, number one, but number two, that their government just can't do things effectively, whether it's um, national security, terrorism prevention, or fire safety. And, uh, and so I think that it's yet another blow to the credibility of an Iraqi government that's struggling. Um, I think it's also notable, too, though, that a lot of times these bombings in and around Baghdad have um, exacerbated sectarian tensions because the victims... ISIS tries to target Shia populations as victims. And in this case, um, due to a combination of circumstances, it was quite a mixed population of Muslims and non-Muslims and Sunni and Shia among the Muslims. Uh, people out shopping for their families before the Eid holiday starts, which is, you know, a week-long holiday in most Arab countries. And, and so I think this was one of those moments where it really wasn't, uh, exacerbating sectarianism. It was actually creating a greater sense of commonality among the residents of Baghdad, but largely directed against their government. There was one um, joint prayer service uh, at the site of the bombing yesterday, sort of at the beginning of the Eid holiday, with Sunni and Shia praying together. I thought it was interesting, too, that this happened. I mean, these are disconnected events, but in a week in which President Obama announced that the troop levels are not going to be drawn down in Afghanistan as quickly as he said, and it, guaranteeing that Afghanistan as an active military engagement is going to be the next president's problem. And it just seems that, you know, with every one of these attacks in Iraq, it just it sort of it brings up the whole question of, again, of did we leave too soon? Were they ready? You know, what well, is our I, also, I also think it's just worth noting whenever something like this happens that a bombing that kills 300 people in Baghdad uh, gets less attention than a bombing that kills, uh, you know, many, many fewer in, in Istanbul. Yeah. And a bombing in Istanbul gets a lot less attention than a bombing or anything in Belgium or, yeah. or, or Orlando. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, and, that's right. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know what to do about that because at some level it's just a reflection of people expect violence in Baghdad. Yeah. There's no but, novelty to it. But, but the story, you know, alligator bites child, um, as, you know, alligator eats 300 children uh, in Baghdad should be worth something on yeah. the scale of... of uh, yeah, and one thing that's also notable is this is sort of the same week that um, in Great Britain they've released the Chicolt report, is I'm yeah, saying yeah, that correctly, exactly. um, yeah. sort of, uh, you know, that apparently has gotten relatively little play in Iraq because they're busy burying their dead at the moment. Um, so but sort of on Britain's involvement in right, the Iraq war. That, yeah. that is sort of a, a scathing indictment of Tony Blair. I haven't read, I think it's like two million words or something like that. It's just longer than War and Peace. It's like 6,000 pages, isn't it? But it's just called War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no peace. Yeah, well, no room for wasted words. I've got too many important ones inside. <laughs> uh, just going back for a second to, to your point, Shane, about, you know, not drawing down as much as expected from Afghanistan. I think the other kind of theme, recurrent theme here as we go toward the end of the Obama administration is that this war against ISIS is hard and it's going to go on for a while. And the U.S. investment is likely to continue to increase, not decrease. You know, we're, we are still somewhere on a slope, which may be getting slipperier and slipperier. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, now from 300 deaths to, to one. Um, 
So this is a very interesting case, um, which I had not heard of before we decided to talk about it on the podcast today, but a Navy sailor who was in training to be a SEAL uh, died during the, the grueling, uh, uh, one of the forms of water training they do. So he was, I guess, with his gear in a pool where they have to tread water. His face was turning blue, his lips were turning blue, and his instructor dunked him under the water twice. The guy died as a result of this, and now the instructor has been charged with homicide. Um, so it's raised some pretty profound questions about what what exactly is it? How do, how do we feel about putting these people through this incredible grueling training that is, in fact, meant to make them into the elite military operators that they are? Right, well, and how right. much so of I don't that think... grueling is, is necessary to make these guys tough and flexible and capable? Yeah. And how much of it is just a hazing ritual? Right. You know, right. And one sort of corrective. I don't think that the instructor has been charged with homicide. I think the uh, the medical examiner has said it was a homicide, and then there's a question of whether or not they'll be held accountable. I mean, I I think it raises, um, you know, important questions that there are. um, Certainly, there's kind of the um, myth making and um, you know machismo narrative of of Navy SEALs, as there should be a badge of honor if you make it through this kind of training. Right, but there's also a sense of you are going to encounter some of these circumstances, um, and how exactly do you prepare the people um, who are going to kind of be on the front lines? Um, circumstances I think as in, like, people who are trying to kill you. Yeah, that, like, I mean, I, th- I think that um, the Washington Post article mentioned that they actually um, waterboard uh, uh, pilot trainees because there's an expectation that they might have to encounter this if they're ever captured, and that it's really important for people to be prepared. Um, I think that it becomes sort of uh, this kind of um, brutality of training and, and, and sort of how realistic do you make it, how bad can you make it. It's going to become more and more salient as we um, integrate um, men and women into the uh, armed forces and into combat roles. Um, certainly we would uh, eventually expect women to uh, rise into sort of elite <clears throat> Certainly, we would expect women to sort of uh, rise into elite special operations roles over well, the course of time. we have at least one graduate of Ranger School now who's female, right? Or two? I think there were, there were two. two. Um, right, and so, like, what is is this kind of, um, does there need to be a rethinking about about this training? Is it, this is just, it's absolutely necessary in order to get these people ready? Or is it sort of part of this macho culture that's going to exclude or discourage half of the armed forces based on sort of... Okay, well, and, so and, and also, to... you don't want it to kill people. Well, I mean, obviously, right. you like, don't like, want to like, kill you, your, you, bet, your you, most capable recruits. But I think there might be another hypothesis here, or maybe another justification for the nature of this training um, that's between you might encounter this in the field and this is just a hazing ritual, which is there's a psychological dimension. These things, were, you know, these seals are supposed to do this week of grueling stuff in the water on four hours of sleep. Why, you know, it's the same theory as Marines' basic training. They're basically trying to push people past their own sense of what their limits are. To And, and so there's a psychological component of just pushing them to the absolute edge and maybe a millimeter beyond so that they have that sense of confidence and capability and so that they know they can survive. And that, you know, if you're not pushing people to their limits, then they never get that, and their limits might almost kill them. So uh, there is a wonderful, wonderful book, not quite about this training, but that deals in great depth with this training, and it's Gail uh, 
uh, Lemon's uh, book, um, Ashley's War, Ashley's War um, which, um, which uh, again, is not, it's, it's about, you know, the sort of, uh, the, the first women to accompany special forces in a, in a sort of cultural liaison role. Uh, and one of them in particular, but among, along the way, it gives... In the field in Afghanistan, uh, in, yes. Uh, and, yes, yeah, right. Um, but in, um, along the way, it gives a, uh, a, a great deal of, of detail on the nature of this sort of training and both how extreme it is, but also the role it plays in preparing people for that kind of service. Check it out. Um, okay, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first. So my object lesson is a movie I saw last night that I'd never heard of until yesterday. It's wow. It's called The Shallows. And it's about a woman who is surfing on a paradise is beach. Is this the Blake Lively movie? Yes. And she gets attacked by this gigantic great white shark. Nice. Uh, she made it, she, she saved by Jim Comey? No, but she's saved <laughs> by wish. but she's saved by <laughs> rational security, and this is what? why it's relevant. So she gets bitten, she gets free of the shark. Is this she... a spoiler alert situation? No, 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 no. Well, I mean, I mean, come on. You think she really like? First of all, spoiler alert, guys. First of all, none of she you doesn't are gonna see die. Okay. Um, yeah, the shark eats her alive, and then looks back at the camera and goes, and then swims <laughs> off. <laughs> it's very disappointing. It's somewhat satisfying too. Um, no, so she gets in by the shark, and she's stranded on this rock, and it's during low tide, and she only has like 20 hours until the high tide is going to come back in, and this rock that's a little island in the middle of the cove is going to be submerged, and the shark will be able to get her. And she has to go through this, this sequence of basic, you know, timing where the shark is and how far to this buoy that she can swim to, and, you know, how fast can he swim versus how fast can she swim, and she has to make stitches out of a pair of earrings, and, like, it's just this really interesting sort of, you know, woman versus nature story where she tries to be extremely rational and scientific about every single thing she needs to do to beat this, like, 40-foot fucking shark. And, you know, it's pretty awesome. That's excellent. Yeah. Great. And it, so it's, it's like, like Into the Wild meets MacGyver. Yeah. No, meets, yeah. Me, meets the Martian. <laughs> meets Gossip Girls. <laughs> Uh, but of course, the entire really time it's Blake, yeah. Blake Lively in a bikini. Yeah. But that's neither here. There's a lot of gratuitous like Blake Lively bikini surfing stuff, which I mean, did nothing for me. But um, <laughs> uh, but I was it was one of those things where you look at it and you're like, this could be just terrible. It was very sophisticated. It was a good script, well shot. She was great. Um, so I actually do. I, I like this security lesson. Actually, this goes back to um, to something that um, we took CPR training before our uh, baby was born. And um, the one thing, you know, I, like it's terrifying and you have these little baby dolls and it was sort of upsetting. And the one thing that I guess totally stuck with me, and the instructor said, it's always better to do something than nothing. Yeah. Even if you forget... Even if you don't know how to do it perfectly, no matter what is happening, the worst possible thing you can do is just panic and paralyze. So even if you don't have the best idea, just do something. Just and I think that's punch the shark in the nose. Punch the she shark in the nose, that, man. Too. Yeah. Susan, when your son is 15, I'm going to interview him about how that <laughs> advice got implemented how in his life. How I was in his <laughs> No, no, like, like how, how he feels about the always intervene, just do something, the worst thing you can do is nothing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I've, I've spread that to all uh, aspects of my parenting. Awesome. Uh, ben, you have an object. So I have uh, an object and a shout-out. 
Uh, my object is also a movie, um, which we've, I believe, discussed once on this show before. But tomorrow, uh, which is probably today for listener, a It'll lot of Friday. listeners, yeah, yeah. Friday, uh, is the opening of Alex Gibney's new movie, uh, Zero Days. Uh, Alex Gibney is the documentary filmmaker who made the truly astonishing movie about WikiLeaks called We Steal Secrets. Uh, he's also, you know, worked with uh, Lawrence Wright on uh, movies about Scientology, and he was the director of, of Taxi to the Dark Side. So he's got a little long history of, of, of kind of great documentary filmmaking. And he has done a movie about Stuxnet, uh, that is just incredibly informative, gripping to watch. I mean, it's a real sort of thriller, um, and, uh, just methodical in its account of, uh, what happened, what, what the different parties' role in it was, and what the costs and benefits were of the operation. Uh, it's a terrific movie. And you should all watch it because, among other things, it will give you an excuse to say the words Nitro Zeus, which uh, is the lack of an excuse for saying which has been missing for your li- from your lives, I'm sure. Like, is that a Nitro Zeus in your pocket, or are you just happy to see There it? we go. <laughs> um, my other shout-out uh, is uh, Rational Security this week hit the big time in the podcast world. It's true. Um, uh, we were, uh, subscribed to by podcasting god Mike Pesca, uh, whoa, of, 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 of the gist. Um, and he, uh, even said that he, after he, he tweeted at me that after he subscribed to Rational Security, he rolled it in a carpet. Um, <laughs> and so for those of you who. Which means he listened um, to which, our crazy bender of an episode last week. Okay, uh, but has he left a review on iTunes? Uh, well, I don't know, but but Mike Pesca, I think it is time. This is my challenge to you, Mike Pesca. <laughs> Careful, he's going to fight you with Vladimir Putin. Uh, yeah, first of all, you need to have me on the show to talk about my fight with Vladimir Putin because, you know, that's just total just material. But secondly... You, we have given you a shout out now on, on rational security. <laughs> you need to reciprocate and give us exactly a shout out on the gist. It's just, it's just fair. Didn't yeah. you say yesterday, Susan, don't get him started? On uh, the carpet rolling, okay. the, you know, Ben's, uh. Hey, man. When, when, when Ben gets on a pun roll. Wrapped to all of our loyal the... listeners who have wrapped, rolled their iPhones in carpets as a result of this podcast. You are now in good company. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mike Pesca is your new leader. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much, Mike. And thank you all for listening. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can download our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And, of course, do leave a comment and a rating wherever you download your podcasting or wherever Mike Pesca downloads his. I'm sure it's someplace very good. And, by, and by the way, hint to the awesome. Panoply Network. Uh, rational security, you know, we would totally do, uh, you know, Casper mattress stuff. Stamps.com. Did we once say we weren't sponsored by the Panoply Network? Or is that the week we weren't sponsored by Raytheon? No, <laughs> Panoply Network message to what, what's his name? Chief Content Officer. Andy Bowers. Andy Bowers. Message to Andy Bowers. 
we want in on the Panoply Network. <laughs> Craven. Craven. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not, we're not beneath. We're not above it. Our podcast is edited and produced by Jen Howell. The music is performed this week by Jim Comey and the Wissy Wigs. We're gonna have to put up on the website what WYSIWYG stands for since all the millennials see is what you get. I think I spelled it right. W I S I W I G. Yeah. Sure. Okay. All right. Who now? No, our our music is of course performed by Sophia Yan, who very enigmatic. What you see is not always what you get. No. No. Yeah. She doesn't wear a nose ring anymore. Oh, really? She used to. Oh, I like the nose ring. See, you used to see a nose ring. But what you get is someone without a nose ring. Thank you, Sophia. On behalf of myself and my friends Ben Tamara and Susan, thank you very much for listening to the podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. Stay cool. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 